Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. And we thank you for sending your Son into the world to do for us what we could have never accomplished of our own merit. You have in him clothed us with a righteousness that is full and complete and is sufficient and adequate uh, to give us boldness and courage to come before you even now uh, to ask you for help as we study your word this morning. And as we study this text, Lord, we do pray that you would give us the ears to hear what you have to say to us this morning. We ask that you would accomplish your purposes through your word this morning. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, please turn in your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark. We come this morning to chapter 4, where we're starting a study of verses 1 to 20, which you won't be surprised, will take us a couple of weeks to get through. When you're in seminary, they tell you that you don't want to preach what some people call sausage link sermons, where you've got, you know, you just cut it off, go as long as you can, then cut it off, and then you just pick back up the next week. Well, I'm sorry, but that's what we're going to have over the next few weeks. Now, there's a lot of ground to cover. I'm going to get as far as I can go this morning, and then we're just going to chomp it off right there, and we'll pick it up next week, all right? So if you want to get the full scope of this study, you will have to come a couple of weeks in a row. I I hope and I trust that you will uh, be blessed by the study of the Word of God with me. But we're looking in verses 1 to 20 at the parable of the sower, the parable of the sower. And we learn from this passage a very simple lesson, and the lesson is this. The way one responds to the Word of God is determined by the condition of their heart. The way one responds to the Word of God is determined by the condition of their heart. The status of the heart determines the response to the Word. Now that's true. In every sermon that you hear, every Sunday sermon, every weekly sermon, that's true every time you read your Bible, that's true every time you evangelize and share the gospel, that the status of the heart determines the response of the hearer. When you proclaim the truth, when you read the truth, your response is rooted in, conditioned on the status of of your heart. Now, in the context of Mark's gospel, uh, the parable of the sower actually helps us to understand why people responded to Jesus the way they did. Right, so, the past few weeks, we've looked at Mark chapter 3, verse 20 down to 35, and we saw that every time the word of God is preached, every time you encounter Jesus through the word or in the ancient world through the life of Jesus and his ministry and miracles, You had to respond. No option. You have to. You must respond and you will respond. Every time you encounter Jesus and His Word, you will respond. This parable, the parable of the sower, helps us to understand why you respond the way you do. There's a a link here, of course. And in Mark's context, and really throughout the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels, what this parable does is it explains for us why... People responded to Jesus in unbelief. 
And it was all about the condition of their heart. Jesus was the most able, the most competent, the most charismatic, in a good way, the most charismatic communicator to ever walk the earth. He preached the truth of God with the greatest power and clarity. Yet, the message Jesus preached did not land on everyone in the same way. In fact, most of the people who heard Jesus preach and teach responded to Him in some form of unbelief. They were unimpressed. Or they weren't impressed enough to follow Him. It was a very slender minority of people. Maybe 15 to 20 to 30. A very slender minority of people who actually responded to Him in faith at this point in His ministry. Thousands of people are coming. And they're listening to Jesus preach. But a very small number actually respond to Him in faith. And the question, of course, is why? Why did so few people respond appropriately to Jesus? The other side of that, why did so many respond in unbelief? Well, the parable of the sower tells us that the problem was not with Jesus. The problem was not Jesus the, the one who was sowing the seed. The problem, the source of unbelief, was not the inefficiency of the preacher or the teacher. The problem lay within the heart of those who heard Jesus teach. That was the real issue. It was the issue then, and it's still the issue today. The parable of the sower makes that explicit. Whereas we, when we have the opportunity to preach or teach or share the gospel, training our children, share the gospel with a coworker, whenever we do that and people don't respond the way that we want them to respond, how do we typically react? If you're like me, you get very introspective and you start thinking, I should have said that. I should have said that. Oh, how did I miss that? And then you hear someone else go behind you and preach the same sermon, and you're like, huh, how did I miss that? Or you share the gospel with a coworker. They ask you a question. You're not ready for it. And you think, oh, if I was only ready to answer that question, then they would have responded appropriately. We are tempted to lay the blame of responses to the gospel at our feet. And we turn inwardly, and we think the problem is with our communication skills, our tactics. Maybe it's our dated approach to evangelism. Maybe we're not up on the newest tactic. Maybe it's our dress. You know, maybe if we lose the tie and the suit, people will come and hear us. Maybe if we get down on their level a little bit more. Maybe if we use more analogies. Maybe if we were a little more you know, seeker-sensitive, maybe they would respond to us better. And the parable of the sower comes to us and says, no, 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 no. It is not about you. It's never been about you. It's actually not about you at all. You are a sower. You take the word and you give it to people. 
You cannot control the responses of others. In the parable of the sower puts the theory of self-focused reasons for rejection of the gospel. It puts that theory to rest and it shows us actually that Jesus was never tempted to think in the sort of simplistic worldly ways that we think about evangelism, preaching, and teaching. Jesus understood that the determinative factor in one's response to preaching and teaching and evangelism was not the teacher. The determinative factor was the soil into which the faithful teacher sowed the simple seed of the Word of God. That's the factor. That's the determinative factor. The soil then determines the reception of the message that we proclaim. And that's the point that Jesus is going to make in this parable, which is why it's called the parable of the sower. Now understand, people we love and adore and respect call it and argue that this is, should be called the parable of the soils. And I get it. I get why they say that. Because the focus of this parable is on these different soils that respond to the seed of the word. But if you look back at Matthew 13, Jesus himself calls this the parable of the sower. So I'm going to get in his camp with him and call this the parable of the sower because that's what Jesus called it. And the reason he called it that is this. This parable is a vindication of the sower. That's what this is. It's a vindication of the sower. In other words, it clears the sower of the responsibility of failing, of failing if he's done his job. Right? A farmer, a sower, has one job. Take this seed and put it in this soil. Beyond that, he can't cause the grass to grow, the seed to grow. He can't control that response. And so from a human vantage point, right, we're thinking humanly here, from a human perspective, this parable, the parable of the sower, is a vindication of the preacher, the teacher, and the evangelist. Because it shifts the responsibility off of yourself onto the hearer of the message. This parable redirects us away from the messenger, the farmer, the sower, and onto the one who hears the word of God taught. And I think we need this. We don't typically think in these categories. We're typically thinking about how we can improve and how we can get better at preaching, teaching, discipling our children, evangelizing, and you should be. All right, so don't take this as a, whew, I'm glad I can give it up. The Lord will zap me and I'll get better. No, 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 no. Uh, you need to keep working and you need to keep getting better. But this passage, this parable, is a relief, should come as a relief for us. That if we do our simple job of sowing the word, the response is in God's hands and at the feet of the one who receives the message. Now we need this for another reason, because ever since the fall of man, we have been looking for someone else to blame for our disobedience to God. The human heart is always roving around looking for someone to blame looking for ways to excuse ourselves of our responsibility to believe the Lord and obey Him. We're always looking for it. And if we can look at the teacher, the preacher, mom and dad, 
If we can look at them and say, they are such ineffective teachers. They're not didactic. They're not dynamic. They're not charismatic enough. They're not, you know, they're not John MacArthur. They're not this or that. They're not my grandma and grandpa who are better at that than mom and dad are. Right? If you can blame someone else, the human heart will do it every time. But this passage, whatever it does, it takes away that excuse from us. It takes away the option of blaming the teacher, whoever that may be, whether that's me, your preaching pastor, or whether that's your Sunday school teacher, or whether that's your mom or your dad, whoever you're tempted to blame for your own disobedience, this passage takes that away. And it reorients our focus onto our hearts. It makes us deal with ourselves and come to terms with the status and the condition of our own hearts. Let me put it another way. Bad preaching and bad teaching is not your problem. It might be a problem. I hope it's not a problem. (laughs) But that's not the ultimate problem for you. I will never be able to knock a home run every time I preach. That's never going to happen. I'm not going to do that. Every time I preach, you're not going to think, whew, man, he really did it that time. That's not what it's about at all. My job is to take the word and give it to you and let the Spirit of God do the work. Your Sunday school teacher is not going to be able to knock it out of the park every time they come to the plate. Your mom and dad are going to fail, and they're not going to share the gospel as clearly as they could, and maybe they want to. There's going to be failures, but what this text does for us is it says the ultimate issue is not out there the issue is right here the issue is in my heart and it forces us to ask ourselves these kind of questions is my heart the kind of heart that can receive the word of god is my heart the kind of heart that can receive the word of god even if the sower is really struggling. As long as the sower's getting it out there, does the seed land on my heart and does it find there a cultivated heart ready to respond? Sometimes the difference between a bad sermon and a really great sermon is your prepared heart. Now, this is not me defending me. I'm just trying to preach this passage, okay? (laughs) For the record, you got, no one is criticizing me. This is not me trying to give an apologetic for my preaching ministry. I'll tell you what I'm trying to do in just a minute, but it's not that. This passage sort of focuses in on our own hearts and, and causes us to ask ourselves, is my heart the kind of heart that can receive the Word of God? Even when the, even when the sower or the teacher is struggling? Am I the kind of hearer who's, who's so ready to hear that I'm just looking for any tidbit of truth that I can take and plant and obey? Has my heart been properly cultivated and conditioned to receive the Word of God today? There's a question for you to ask. Saturday night, what can you be doing to get your heart ready to receive the Word of God? Have I prayed for the sower today? Have I prayed for the sower this morning? Have I prayed for the ones who are sowing seed all along this hallway? 
It's happening every Sunday. Do you have the kind of heart that is praying for those who are propagating the truth? Or are you here to critique the different sowers? Is that your occupation? You come here and you are a a farm critic. And you come here and you think, wow, he could have done this better, he could have done that better. Paul didn't really mean that. Jesus didn't really mean this, yada, yada, yada. I'm not saying throw away your discernment. Please don't do that. Compare Acts 17. You know, do, we, we have to do that. But the principle here and the point I want to make is, are you the kind of hearer who comes to hear the word and the seed sown? Or do you find your responsibility in critiquing the sower of the seed so that you can get your eyes off of your own heart? It's a lot easier to critique sowers of the seed of the word than to do the hard work of cultivating your own heart isn't it and that's true for all of us including myself well i want to argue that god would have your attention to be first on the condition of your heart before you start critiquing sowers and that that's really the issue here and that's what we're going to look at over the next few weeks as we work through this passage among a number of other things there there are so many different angles you can take this passage which you can imagine this has been really difficult for me because I've been pulled all over this week you know trying to figure out okay what am I going to talk about what am I going to say because there's so many points of application in this parable but I'm going to give you a couple of hopes that I hope are accomplished over the next few weeks as we look at this passage together one is I've alluded to it already and it's this that we'll all stop blaming the sower if the word is not bearing fruit in our lives. That we'll start looking at our own hearts first. Understanding that the sower has a job to do and we need to make sure the sower is sowing the seed of the word. That's what we need to be doing. But once the seed has been sown, however imperfectly, we want to get our eyes onto the application and obedience of the seed that has been sown. The seed, the sower rather, the farmer, the one who sows the seed or teaches the word, he has one responsibility, and that is to teach the truth of the word of God. If the seed has been sown, the rest is up to us from a human vantage point. Okay, If the seed, if the word is taught, now the ball is in your court. How will I respond to this truth? We want to be the kind of hearers who are characterized in Mark 4, verse 20, as good soil. That doesn't mean that you are a good person. right? You get your soil all fixed up, and now God will work on you. No, no, that's not what he means. He simply means, as a metaphor, it means that you're the kind of person who hears the word of God and is looking to obey it. And I'll hopefully demonstrate that to you. That's one hope, that we'll get our eyes off of the sower necessarily and get our heart, eyes on our own hearts and getting our hearts cultivated to receive the word of God. Another hope I have in this study is that you will be encouraged as you go around sharing the gospel, teaching your children and co-workers about the Lord. My hope is that you will take this parable as a reminder that your job is very, very simple. Very simple. You are to sow the seed of God's word. That's it. In evangelism, that's what you're doing. You're sowing the seed of the Word. With your children, that's what you're doing. You're sowing the seed of the Word day in, day out. You're sowing the seed of the Word. 
giving the word to people, proclaiming the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if people do not respond the way that you would hope for them to respond, my hope is that you will understand that the problem is not your proclamation of the truth. Now, there's a, re- there's a time to think about how you're delivering the truth. That's certainly fair. But at the end of the day, if you have been a faithful sower of the Word of God, you cannot till up the other person's heart to receive the Word. You can't do that work. You can't cause them to repent. You can't do that work. That is God's work. Yours is to stand as a faithful farmer and cast the seed of God's Word onto the hearts of men and women and children and trust that God will do the supernatural work of calling that seed to bear fruit. And as we read in Isaiah 55, God's Word always accomplishes God's purpose. So there's just a couple of things I hope that we will be able to come away with as we make our way through this study. But there is more, as I said, But I want to take our time through this passage because I I really want us to sort of sink the plow a little deeper here and and get all that we can uh, from this parable. So why don't you stand with me and we'll get into it this morning. Mark chapter 4, and I want us to actually read the whole parable. Beginning in verse 1 down through verse 20. And if you can't stand that long, it is not a sin for you to sit down. Okay? Verse 1, he began to teach again by the sea. And such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down. And the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables and was saying to them in his teaching, Listen to this. Behold, the sower went out to sow. As he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched. And because it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns. And the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. Other seeds fell into the good soil. And as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced thirty 60 and a hundredfold. And he was saying, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. As soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But those who are outside get everything in parables, so that while seeing they may see and not perceive. And while hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then, when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. 
These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And those are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil and they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold. You may be seated. So let's look first, as we make our way through, let's look first at the setting of the parable. It's in verses 1 and 2. But zooming out just a bit, you need to know that from verse 20 of chapter 3 all the way to chapter 5 and verse 20, so 3.20 to 5.20 constitutes one day in the life of Jesus, a single day in the life of our Lord. And chapter 4, verse 1, picks up almost, I mean, probably around lunchtime of this same day. So all that unfolded in 3.20 down to verse 35, all of that we looked at over the past few weeks, all of that followed immediately on the hills of Jesus here giving this parable. Chapter 4, 1 picks up towards the middle of that day, and of course it's uh, preceding the ongoings in chapter 3, verses 20. And you'll remember, I don't want to preach what I preached then in verses 20 to 35 of chapter 3, but you'll remember that that section was on responding to Jesus Christ. And I alluded to that earlier. Everyone who encounters Jesus must respond to him in verses 20 to 35 of chapter 3. We see that people responded in essentially three ways. He was either a lunatic, a liar, or he was Lord. And as I mentioned, this parable is going to help us understand why they responded the way they did. So now we come into chapter 4, and we see that Jesus, in verse 1, has likely left the house where he was and has gone out to the Sea of Galilee. All right, so he leaves the house. Crowds are so full there. Remember, he can't even eat. And he leaves and goes out to the Sea of Galilee. Probably he was in Capernaum, which is the northwest side of Galilee. And now he goes out probably to the north side, northeast maybe side of the Sea of Galilee. And as he leaves, the crowds apparently continue to follow after him. And the emphasis in verse 1, and even in the parallel accounts as well, is actually on the crowds themselves. Mark 1, Mark 4, verse 1 rather, calls this a very large crowd. It's not just a crowd, it was a very large crowd. And then at the end of verse 1, Mark says that the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. Big, massive crowd. And each one of them were by the sea on the land, and Jesus was teaching them. You remember back in chapter 3 that the crowds were not just these sort of passive, you know, sitting down. It was not like this. This is a nice, peaceful environment. It's not like this. They are pressing in on Jesus. Imagine if you all got up and wanted to touch the guy who's up here. That was Jesus. Jesus was preaching and teaching, and everyone was coming in chapter 3, verse 19, 10 to 19. We see that they were coming to him because they wanted to get their hands on him. Not to hurt him, but to touch him. Because people who touched Jesus were healed. 
And here they are, thousands of people most likely, pressing in on Jesus, trying to touch Him. And because their intentions were, I don't think mal, but they wanted to touch Him to be healed, because of their motivations, Jesus had to make a separation from them so that He could actually teach. In order to do this, though, because of the crowds, Jesus came up with a floating pulpit which we are first introduced to in chapter 3, verse 9. But we see it again here. And apparently, it became sort of standard practice for Jesus to preach from this floating pulpit. So Jesus is in his floating pulpit, and he's proclaiming the truth, sowing the seed. Now, we don't know exactly where Jesus was on the Sea of Galilee, but there is a place, they think, where he was. It was a, it's a location that's sort of a cove, and Jesus could have been on the in the boat on the sea, and the way the, the geography is framed, it would have allowed his voice to carry, and they've tested it, and, and something like 7,000 people could hear a guy sitting on the boat and talking in a normal voice. We don't know if it was 7,000 people, but it could easily have been that number. So here Jesus is in this sort of natural amphitheater. And probably the, the way that it looks is a couple of Jesus' disciples have also sort of waded out into the water. And Jesus is in the boat, and they're maybe waist deep, holding the boat still, so it's not being you know, sloshed around by the waves. And Jesus sits down to teach. Now the crowd, of course, was massive. And it would have consisted of a variety of people. It was not sort of monolithic crowd. It was a crowd that consisted of several different types of listeners or hearers. Of course, we know that the disciples were there. We know that from Mark 3 that these were the ones Jesus said were his true spiritual family. They were the ones who had responded to Jesus in saving faith. They believed Him. They trusted Him. They weren't just trying to use Him to get what they wanted, although they sort of waxed in and out of that. But fundamentally, they were good soil. They had responded in faith to the Lord, and they were there bowing to Him as Lord and Master and ready to do whatever the King wanted them to do. They had left everything to follow Him. That was one sort of sliver of the crowd, one piece of the pie. But there was another sliver of the crowd, and that was the, the group of men known as the scribes and the Pharisees. They were the religious leaders of Israel, as we've seen. We know, according to verse three, or chapter 3, rather, that they had responded to Jesus in hard-hearted unbelief. Staunch, dark, hard unbelief. And they had conceded, yeah, Jesus has power. Of course He has power. No one can do what he's doing unless he has some sort of supernatural power. However, they credited the power of our Lord not to the Holy Spirit, but to the power of Beelzebul, who's the ruler of the demons, or Satan. And in light of that accusation, we remember, you remember, in light of that accusation, Jesus declared that they had committed an unpardonable sin because they were crediting the work of the Holy Spirit to the work of the devil. That is the unpardonable sin. They had blasphemed the Holy Spirit, and in so doing, they cut themselves off from the Lord. They were hard 
compact soil. Their heart was hard. They had cut themselves off from the Lord, and in so doing, they cemented their rejection of God and their role in the crucifixion of our Lord. However, despite their unbelief, they kept following Jesus around. Right? We see that throughout the Gospels. They, they didn't say, oh, I've had enough, we need to go on. No, they followed Jesus around so that they could undermine Him and oppose Him and His teaching at every turn. So they were always there. They seemed to be always present in the crowds as well. So we've got disciples, and then we have scribes and Pharisees, religious leaders. Now, the third part of the crowd uh, is a, a group that sort of splintered into these smaller factions who had responded, they had responded positively to Jesus. They, they were glad to have Jesus in town. They were happy He was there. But they only had a superficial interest in Him. They loved being around Jesus so that they could get their needs met. They were what we could call superficial hearers. It wasn't long ago, actually, that I was um, on a university campus and I was having a conversation with a young man, uh, sharing the gospel with him. And I asked him where he stood with the Lord. And he said to me, I don't know, I just really like being around Christians. I said, what do you like so much about being around Christians? He said, well, they're nice to me, they're kind to me, they talk to me, uh, they want to spend time with me. And he went on and on. And his reasoning orbited around him. These are people who love me. They like me. They think I'm funny. They want to be with me. They have an interest in me. So I shared the gospel with him. And I don't know where he stands now, but he was much like these superficial hearers. Just wanting to be around Christians. Wanting to be around Jesus so that he could have his needs met. I mean, he wants to go hang out with, well, some people do, but... Christians are nice people to be around, right? We love others, we care for other people, we, we uh, think about others' needs. We are the hands and feet of Christ on the earth. So it makes sense that people would want to, for superficial reasons, be around other Christians. And the challenge there, I'm getting ahead of myself, is that you can start thinking because you like being around Christians that that necessarily makes you a Christian. That's a real danger. True Christians have love for the brothers, but love is a commitment to give what I have that you need because God wants me to. Love is not, I want to be around you because you make me feel good. But here we are with superficial hearers. Their interests didn't go beyond the surface of their own appetite. Are they followed Jesus in John 6, 26? Jesus looked at them and said, you're only following me because you've been fed. You ate the bread and were satisfied. That's the only reason you're following Others followed Jesus so that they could have their physical diseases healed. You see that in Luke 6, 17 to 18. And there were others who followed Jesus simply because it was really entertaining. I mean, here's a guy, it's like stick it to the man. Right? Here's a guy, Jesus, who's always going after the, guy, the leaders. Right? He's always going after the, the leaders in Israel. 
We don't like them either. You know, we, we have like this anti-authority kind of bent. We don't like them. And we like that Jesus doesn't like them. So we like following him around and seeing him poke at the scribes and the Pharisees. Of course, there were other people who were just interested anthropologically they just, or socially. They just liked seeing, huh, that's really interesting. That demon just came out of that guy. You know? So there's all sorts of reasons people would follow Jesus. But the larger part of the crowd, probably, would have consisted of people who were very curious about Jesus, but they were very fickle. They were curious. They were interested but they were fickle. And we know that because whenever they finally do jump on board with Jesus, they put palm branches down and they hail Him as the true Messiah. And then by the end of the week, what are they doing? Crucify Him. Crucify Him. They were fickle, superficial followers of Jesus. So in this large mass of people that's gathered to hear Jesus teach, there were true disciples. That was one piece of the pie. Then there were religious leaders and their followers. That was another piece of the pie. And then there was this larger category of what we're calling superficial hearers. And that was the makeup of the crowd. So here they are. Jesus is in his floating pulpit teaching this mass of humanity that is very diverse And verses 1 and 2 says that Jesus was doing exactly that. He was teaching them, which, of course, was his common occupation while on the earth. He came to preach and teach the gospel. He would teach from house to house in the synagogues, he taught. He taught by the sea. He was always teaching. But verse 2 gives us a little bit different angle of the kind of teaching that Jesus was doing at this moment. And there is a shift in the Gospels. After Mark 3, after Matthew 13, when the scribes finally and fully denounce Jesus and harden their heart, and Jesus says they've committed an unpardonable sin, Jesus begins teaching in parables. He would have taught in parables before, that's true, but the difference is he always explained the parables in his teaching. And the change that happens here moving forward, is that Jesus will give parables in public, but He will only give explanations of the parables in private. That's what we see in Mark 4, verse 33. Why don't you flip over there with me. With many such parables, Mark 4, 33, He was speaking the Word to them. So there are a lot more parables that He gave than we have in Mark. Mark gives us three. Matthew gives us seven in this section. But there were a lot of parables He gave. And he would give them so far as they were able to hear it. Then verse 34. And he did not speak to them without a parable. But he was explaining everything privately to whom? To his own disciples. A parable without an explanation is a riddle. A parable without an explanation is a riddle. Up to this point, Jesus has given parables to elucidate his teaching. A parable just... It's from the Greek word parabole, which means you throw something alongside another thing. It just means to cast along in your teaching, you're just throwing an illustration, um, an extended metaphor. It's kind of like a window to let light into what you're teaching. That's what you're doing. And Jesus did this all the time. We see Him doing it all the time. But when you give these parables, and that's all you give, and you don't give an explanation like we have in, in the rest of Mark 4, 
that parable becomes a riddle for people on the outside. Which is why, if you look down in verse 11, he was saying to them, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But those who are on the outside get everything in parables. It remains an enigma to them. A riddle. They can't understand what I'm trying to say. We'll talk more about that dimension when we get to verses 11 and 12 next week. But just know for now that a parable can reveal truth or it can conceal truth. A parable reveals truth or conceals truth. And you think, well, why would Jesus ever want to conceal truth? Well, the Proverbs say that it's God's glory to conceal a matter. But we'll see as we progress through this, and I'll give you a little insight into that now. The Lord Jesus was, heart, was, was concealing truth from the scribes and the Pharisees and those who were on the outside because they had already hardened their heart against Him. I was thinking horizontally, right? Thinking, you know, of course, if you could go back in the decree of God, it's a different explanation. But right now we're thinking on, on a horizontal, humanly speaking level. And these men had already hardened their heart. And so Jesus, in an act of judgment on them, gives a parable and He doesn't give an explanation. Only those who are on the inside, those who have responded in faith to Him, they get the mysteries of the kingdom revealed. Okay, I started preaching my sermon for next week. All right, back to verse 3. This brings us right up to the parable. And what I want to do with you in the remaining minutes we have together is just fly over this pretty quick and then spend the next, uh, our next time together getting into the weeds of it. And I didn't mean a pun there, actually. All right. With the crowd having gathered around Jesus, he begins to teach. In verse 3, it's, he says, Listen to this. Behold, the sower, or the farmer, went out to sow. Now, this would have been a very common image for everyone in the crowd, of course. Not only were they living in an agrarian society, but this event is taking place in rural Galilee. So during planting season, the hills in Galilee would have been dotted with farmers doing exactly what Jesus is describing here. There's, their fields would have been plowed up, and the, the farmer would have a bag on his shoulder, and he would take seed and broadcast it into the soil. Usually someone would come along behind him with a, maybe like a palm branch or something and sort of sweep the dirt over the seed. But here, we're just told that the farmer goes out and he sows the seed. Verse 4, Some of the seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. It would have been virtually impossible to prevent that. This is what happens. Birds come, they see seed, and they eat it. Before the guy is able to come and bury it with the palm branch, the birds swoop in and are able to eat it. However, this is a very uh, specific type of rejection. He says this, Some seed fell on the soil, I mean on the, on the path, on the road. 
Not just before he could cover it up, the birds came in and started eating it for a free lunch. No, the idea is that fell on the path or the road. And really, this is probably referring to the pathway that the farmer would have walked as he's sowing the seed. He can't just stand on the edge of the field and throw it out there as far as he can. Right? He has to walk through the field that he's plowed. And as he walks, his hard foot steps on the soil and compacts it. Over and over. And he walks the path over and over. And over time, that pathway, although it's soil, becomes as hard as concrete. And that is where the seed fell on that path. And because it fell and just landed on the surface, the birds were able to fly in and devour it. That's the first seed. Other seed, verse 5, fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil. Literally, it fell on the Petra. Remember Peter's name? It's from that word Petra, which means rock. In this case, it refers to the layer of rock that was hidden just under the top soil. It wasn't as if the farmer went out and threw some seed in the gravel parking lot. And he knows better than that. Everyone knew better than that. A seed will not take root if you plant it in gravel. The idea here is that there is a layer of rock underneath the surface that was imperceptible to the sower. He doesn't know. He just sows the seed. But unbeknownst to him, underneath the surface is a layer of rock. Now, before you say, well, Jesus didn't know their heart. He did. You're right. He did know their heart. But Jesus doesn't say, I am the sower here. He's talking about anyone who proclaims the truth of God. Anyone who does this. You don't know what's underneath the the subsoil. You don't know that. You don't know what's there unless experience has taught you that it's there. It looks like this soil is in good shape. It's plowed up just like the rest of it. Here's a seed because this is good Soil, at least it looks that way. But over time, the true condition of the soil would have manifested itself in the response of the seed. So verse 5, it immediately springs up because it had no depth of soil. It was a quick result. It looked great. It looked promising. You've seen this. I know you've seen this. Man, this is incredible. But there's no depth of soil. Which, of course, is problematic in the blistering heat of the Middle East. So verse 6, after the sun had risen, it was scorched. And because it had no roots, it withered away. It looked healthy at the beginning, but because its roots had no depth, it was unable to draw the necessary moisture it needed to withstand the heat of life, you could say. So it withered away before it bore any fruit. Other seed, he goes on in verse 7, cast by the farmer fell among thorns. Again, this is not like, oh, there's a thorn, you know, a patch of thorns, let me throw some seed in it. No. This is tilled soil. It looks good. It looks like it's good soil. In fact, this soil actually has enough nutrients in it to cause the thorn plants to shoot up. 
In fact, some of these thorn plants, and they think this particular thorn bush, would shoot up up to six feet tall. And in this case, the seed is sown in that soil that's mixed in with the seed of thorns. And the two plants grow up together side by side until the pace of the thorn plant chokes out the sower's seed. And thus, the good seed is unable to produce fruit. So some seed fell on the path, some on the bedrock, some among the thorns. But, lastly, verse 8, some of the farmer's seed actually fell into good soil. Praise God. Some of it landed in good soil. Other seed, verse 8 says, fell into the good soil. And as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced 30, 60, and 100 fold. Of the four soils, this is the only soil to carry the seed to production. This is the only fruit that comes. The seed is sown, but only this soil bears fruit. And it does so in remarkable measure. Most of us are not thinking about crop yield. So let me help you see how striking this is. According to the best sources from the time, the common yield of the day was 7.5 with an exceptionally good yield being tenfold. That, that means one seed would produce ten, seven or ten edible pots. One tomato plant, you get 10 tomatoes. One seed, tomato seed, you get 10 tomato. That's the idea. That's the yield. 10 would have been exceptional at this point. But here the yield of this seed far surpasses 7 or 10 or what is a reasonable yield. And it goes to 30, 60, and 100 fold. That's extraordinary. And so... Everyone listening, this is an agrarian, agrarian society rather, they would have heard this and said, that doesn't make sense. What kind of seed is this? What kind of soil is that? This doesn't compute. What is going on here? And that's Jesus' point. That there is a good type of soil and supernaturally, it receives the seed of the Word and the fruitfulness of it makes up for all the rejected soil. The supernatural fruit of the one seed retained and carried by the good soil, the production of that fruit makes up for all the miscarrying of the other soils. Everyone would have seen this is supernatural okay so that's the parable one sower four soils that all receive the same seed and yet only one soil carries the seed to full maturity and the measure of that fruit the fruit rather from that soil makes up for the inefficiency of all the other soils now moving on to verse 9 and then we will be done to cap it off, this parable, to bring it to its conclusion, Jesus says, verse 9, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
verse 3, if you go back to verse 3, how does it begin? How does the, Jesus begin the parable? Listen. All right, how does he end the parable? Verse 9, he who has ears to hear, let him listen. He couches the whole parable around these two words, akuo, listen, acoustics, right? Listen, 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 listen. And the end of it, he says, listen if you have the ears to hear. Same statement is repeated in verse 23. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, let me quickly explain this. On a human level, everyone in the crowd, of course, has ears. They can listen. And if they couldn't, Jesus would heal them. And he did, in fact, do that. But Jesus, of course, was making another point. And that point is tightly connected to the Old Testament. It's the same language of having ears and hearing and listening, having eyes and seeing. This sort of language is used in the prophets uh, on several occasions. And it was used actually as a rebuke of the people of God. They were the people who had the benefit of hearing the Word of God week in, week out. I mean, from childhood, they were memorizing Scripture. They had heard it over and over and over and over. Yet, they continued to live rebellious lives. And the rebellion of their lives demonstrated the deafness of their ears. You tracking with that? The rebellion of their lives demonstrated the deafness of their ears to the word of God. Listen to the way that Ezekiel puts this. Ezekiel 12, verse 2. Or actually, God speaking to Ezekiel says this. Son of man, Ezekiel, you live in the midst of a rebellious house who have eyes to see. But do not see, ears to hear, but do not hear, for they are a rebellious house. The fruits of their lives was rebellion, defying, resisting authority. That's what it means to rebel. I resist authority. I don't want to come underneath the authority of anyone else. I am my own authority. It's amazing. This is coupled with Verse 35 of chapter 3. Verse 34, rather. The, or verse 35. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister. Whoever abandons their own will and comes underneath my will and the will of God, they are my true spiritual family. And now here Jesus is saying, listen. Listen if you have ears. And they all would have realized this was an echo of the prophet's judgment on the people of God who had been the beneficiaries of the Word of God week in, week out, yet continue to live rebellious lives. They would go to the temple, hear the Word, and yet they would leave unaffected by it. Now I hope you're sort of sensing the similarities between their condition, their their position rather, and our position. We are a people who hear the Word of God. The seed is thrown at us all day long almost. We listen to sermons all week long. It's like seed. It's just being thrown at me all day long. And Jesus, of course, is emphatic that it's not about simply hearing the Word. There is a way that you can hear the Word and it's just as if, I mean, it's all physical, right? Just, it's just coming in through your eardrums, right? That's it. It gets no, nowhere near your heart. 
You just hear it over and over and over again. And what happens is, it can be beat down like the soil underneath the farmer's foot. And Jesus is here saying, listen if you can. If you hear what I'm saying, if this makes sense to you, then it's time to listen up. Because you know our fathers, your fathers, have heard for centuries. And look what they've done. They always kill the prophets. They always do this. It's time for repentance. It's time for change. Stop resisting and rebelling against the Word of God. I'm here preaching the Word of God to you. Let not this Word fall on a hard heart. They had heard the Word of God their entire lives, but had never really heard the Word of God. Jeremiah actually sort of sums it up for us well, and this will be the last thing I say. Jeremiah 5, verse 21. Listen to this. Now hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not hear. Do you not fear me, declares Yahweh? Do you not tremble in my presence? For I have placed the sand as a boundary for the sea, an eternal decree, so it cannot cross over it. Though the waves toss, yet they cannot prevail. Though they roar, yet they cannot cross over it. Now listen to verse 23. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and departed. Verse 23 and verse 21. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears they do not, that do not hear. And they have a hard, stubborn, rebellious heart, which is why they live stubborn, hard-hearted, rebellious lives. And that's the issue. Jesus has just been preaching. Jesus, why is it that the religious leaders aren't responding the way they should? Why is it that the crowd seems so fickle and noncommittal? And Jesus says, let me tell you the parable of the sower. I'll tell you why. And it has nothing to do with the farmer, and it has everything to do with the soil of their hearts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that by your grace, supernaturally, we have been given hearts that believe the word and have responded in faith. And we pray right now, Lord, that you would be at work tilling and working in the hearts of people in this room to finally be able to receive the word of God and that they would bear fruit. And we pray, Lord, as a church, that we would be the kind of people who bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold, and that it will be clearly a supernatural thing what you are doing among us at Calvary Bible Church. And Lord, we ask all of this in the name of Christ. Amen.